Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, God sets his plan in motion to free the Israelites with the birth and early life of Moses, the providence of God, and standing up for injustice. Exodus 2, Lesson 2 of the Exodus Study. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. On the last episode, we talked about how large the nation of Israel had become and that the new Pharaoh was afraid of them. And so he tried to suppress them with hard labor. And when that didn't work, he tried to get the midwives to kill their baby boys. And so if you missed that episode, you might want to go back and listen because we talked about civil disobedience because the midwives disobeyed the authorities above them. And the focus was on how God feels about that in our lives. When are we allowed to disobey the government? And when are we commanded by the Lord to do what the authorities tell us? Now, this week, we're going to continue talking about how this Pharaoh is threatened by these Israelites and what his next solution is to suppress these people. Unfortunately, I still do not have the written study finished, so just stay with me on that, and I will let you know as soon as I have it done so that if you want to purchase this study in order to have all of the scriptures there written down for you and all of that, then you'll be able to do that. Let's go ahead and begin today by reading the last verse of chapter 1 and then the first 10 verses of chapter 2. So it says, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And a man of the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give your wages. So the woman took a child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. 
So she called his name Moses because she drew him out of the water. Okay, now, if you remember last week, we discussed how we're also going to go into two other places in the New Testament that give this same account so that we can see if there's anything different in those passages. And so the first one is Stephen's account. Just before he's stoned by the Jews, he tells them their story, basically. So we're going to read in Acts 7, beginning in verse 20, from 20 to 22. And it says, At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and in the mighty words and deeds. So here we learn a little bit of extra information that he was taught in the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was taught in mighty words and deeds. The Egyptians at this time had one of the greatest education systems. And so he would have been taught three different languages several different things that many people in the world would not have been taught, and he would have been pretty intelligent. Now, let's read in Hebrews 11. This is the faith chapter where Paul is relating all of the different people that have acted in faith. So this is Hebrews eleven twenty three, and it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. And so his parents were acting in faith by hiding him. And it also kind of touches a little bit on what we talked about last week of how they also went against the government by hiding him and not giving him over to the authorities to be thrown in the river. Now that brings us to the point of Pharaoh deciding to throw all these baby boys in the river. It already was horrible whenever he made them slaves, and then even more horrible whenever he had asked the midwives to kill their sons. But even at that, hopefully these midwives would have done it in a very discreet way and probably just told these mothers that the baby was stillborn or something like that. It would not have been as traumatic as having a soldier come into your home and rip your baby from your arms and take him and throw him in the river. So this has gone too far. This is enough. And that means it's time for the Lord to begin executing his plan to deliver the children of Israel from this oppressive government. And the person that will do that is Moses. And so Moses was born to two Levites. The husband and the wife were from the tribe of Levi. If you remember, Levi was the third son of Jacob. It will be a while before the people are delivered, but God has put the plan in motion now. And I want you to pay close attention to all of the things that had to happen in order for Moses to be saved. It's really remarkable if you think about all of the things that had to happen. So the first thing is how his mother knew how to make this perfect little boat for her son to float on the river and be saved in because it would have taken a lot of ingenuity. Now, they call it a basket because it was woven by these plants, but this is only one of three places that the word ark is used in the Bible. The first place is what we know of is Noah's Ark. 
And then the second place is here. And the third place is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant shows us the greatest picture of what an Ark is because the Ark of the Covenant is basically a box with a lid on it that holds the holy things in the temple. Now, Noah's Ark is not called a boat, but an Ark because an Ark is an enclosed structure. So Noah's Ark was more like a houseboat not a ship or anything that they would have known back then as a boat. And then this little basket is also an enclosed structure. We know that it's enclosed because that's the meaning of the ark. And so she wove this and then did the same thing that Noah did with his ark by putting asphalt and pitch on the outside so that the water would not leak in. But Noah had instruction directly from God as to how to make this ark so that it would float on the water. So it's impressive that his mother knew how to do this to keep her son safe. Now, also, as we're talking about Noah, I want to show you a couple of parallels. You remember that God sent a big flood of water to kill all the people on the earth, and his ark is the only thing that saved him. He floated on the very waters that were supposed to kill him, and that's how he was saved. Well, that's the same thing with Moses because Moses was floating in the ark that his mother made for him in the very waters that had killed all the rest of the baby Hebrew boys. And the ark is the only thing that saved him. Now, the second thing that I want to point out that is impressive is that the mother knew the exact right place to put Moses so that he would be found by someone that could care for him. She had to have known that this was the area where the royal people would go to bathe. And she also had to know that it was not a permanent solution for her son to float on the river forever because he's going to grow and obviously not be able to do that for infinity. And so she is actually wanting someone to find him, but she's wanting someone to find him that can take care of him. And so she strategically places him in this place so that he will be found by someone that can do that. The third thing is how she was still such a nurturing mom that she would send Moses's sister to watch after him so that she could be informed as to what was going on. And then how amazing that this teenage girl had the forethought to go to the princess and say, hey, would you like me to find a woman to nurse this baby for you? Because obviously she does not have ability to nurse him. This is not her child. And there would be many Hebrew women who would have milk because all of their babies had just been taken away from them. But the forethought for a teenage girl to think this is pretty impressive. Now, her mother may have coached her on that, but regardless, it's pretty neat that she would think to go to the princess and talk to her about this. And then that his very own mother would be the one to nurse him and she would get paid for it. So not only does she get to spend the first several years with her child, but she gets paid to do what she should have done in the first place for free. So what a blessing that she gets to spend this time with her child. And then just the good fortune that it would be the princess that finds him and would be able to, you know, educate him in the ways of the Egyptians and raise him up as royalty. So do these sound like just seven coincidences that saved Moses' life and eventually the entire Israelite nation? 
I mean, I just do not see how that's even possible. That's a lot of coincidences, a lot of pretty impressive things that had to happen in order for Moses's life to be saved when all the rest of the baby boys were killed. And so this was God's plan and his divine providence was making all of this happen. Pretty impressive. The next thing that I was noticing in here is that she immediately realized he was a Hebrew baby. Now, most likely she just knew that he was a Hebrew baby because if it was an Egyptian baby, he would be with his mother. So only the Hebrew women would send their children out in a basket to be found on the river by someone. But also, you have to wonder if he looked different, if his skin color was different than hers, or if it was just his clothes, he was dressed differently. Also, the baby Hebrews were circumcised, and so maybe that was a distinction because the Egyptians didn't do that until a later age. There's no good way to know exactly how she knew it apart from just common sense of that. But I want you to keep that in mind because this is going to be important later on to his appearance. Now, the other question I have is, why did she save his life whenever her father had just ordered his life to be killed? And then why did the father allow it? And the only thing that I can come up with is the reason that he wanted the baby boys killed in the first place is because he didn't want them to grow up and be soldiers that fought against him. But he wasn't going to be raised as a Hebrew boy. So by being raised as an Egyptian, he would be no threat to him. At least that's what he thought. Little did he know, right? Dangerous error of judgment on his part. Now, the Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses because the name Moses means to draw out. And she drew him out of the river, saving his life. But coincidentally, he later is the one that draws out the Israelites from Egypt, saving their life. So we've talked several times about how names mattered back then so much. And he is just living up to his name. Now let's go ahead and continue reading the next few verses in Exodus, beginning in verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to the brothers and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and that. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill us as you killed that Egyptian? And so Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now let's read the other accounts. The first one in Hebrews 24 through 26 says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to that reward. And then Stephen's account in Acts 7 verses 23 through 28 say, Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brothers would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them who were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? 
But he who did the neighbor wrong pushed him away and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled. Okay, so we find out here that he was 40 years old when this happened. And so if you notice, we skipped 40 years of Moses' life. And the biggest reason for that is just because there is not enough space in this Bible to write all of the things that go on in his life. His life already fills up four books of the Bible. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all about the life of Moses. And so, obviously, we can't list everything that went on with him. And his childhood, the only thing that we really need to know is that he was educated in the Egyptian way and raised by the princess. Now, Stephen tells us that he was contemplating the burdens of his brothers and had to go down there and see what was going on. He knew who he was. And so again, it makes you wonder if he looked different or if he was just told this, but he knew who he was and he seemed to have a sense that maybe he could do something for his people. Rather, he knew the promise of God and realized his calling all at that time, or if he just had in his mind that, hey, I'm a person of authority. Maybe I can do something to help my people. I don't like the way that this is going on. We don't know, but he did feel compelled to go and see what was going on with them. And it tells us that he rejected completely his royal status. That Hebrews verse tells us that he did not want to be a Hebrew and have all these privileges. He didn't feel deserving of those things because he felt like he was supposed to be down there with his people. And so he goes down there to watch after them and feel sorry for them and immediately sees this Egyptian beating this Hebrew, and it upsets him to the point that he kills this man. Now, he thinks that he did it discreetly, but finds out the next day that people know. And we notice quickly whenever he tries to stop these Hebrews from fighting, that they do not accept who he is. It seems that they resent him for making it out, you know, and they're like, you think you're somebody or whatever, but we don't care about you. You're not anybody to us because you haven't suffered the things that we suffered and we don't need your salvation. You know, it just seems like they just have a a resentful attitude towards him. And so he doesn't really fit either place at this point. Now, let's go ahead and read the rest of our passage for today. It'll be Exodus two fifteen through 22. It says, When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled their troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left this man? Call him that he may eat bread with us. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. Gershom means stranger. So whenever he ran away from the Pharaoh, he ran south to the Sinai Peninsula where the Midianites lived. 
And these Midianites are the sons of Abraham's second wife, Keturah. After Sarah died, he married Keturah and she had children for him also. And his descendants are the Midianites and they have settled in the Sinai Peninsula. So he says he's a stranger in a foreign land. And this is a foreign land, but these people are actually closer kin to him than the Egyptians that raised him because he is a descendant of Isaac, who was Abraham's son by Sarah. And they are descendants of Abraham also through his wife, Keturah. But he feels like a stranger there. And when he gets there, he's sitting by the well and he sees these girls come up to water their father's flock. But immediately the shepherds run them away. And in true fashion, Moses cannot stand there idly by and watch people doing wrong to others especially people of power, using their power against the weak. And so he steps in and chases these men away. And this must have happened often because the father was surprised that they came home so early. So most likely this always happened where they would go and start watering the flock and then the shepherds would come, they'd chase them away. They'd have to wait for them to leave. They might get started again and then some more shepherds might come. And this would happen off and on until they would finally get it done and get home. And whenever Rule found out that Moses had helped his daughters He was obviously pleased with a man like that and asked for him to come and have dinner with them. And then it skips directly to the fact that he stays with rule and marries his daughter and has a son. Now, let's read verse 29 in Acts 7 because it tells us just a little bit more about this. It says, Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. So this only mentions the first son, Gershom, but it tells us here that he had two sons in the land of Midian. And so we'll hear about the other one later. Now, the reason I told you to keep it in your mind about how the princess knew that he was a Hebrew is because if you notice, whenever the dad asked the girls how they got there, they said an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. So they thought he was an Egyptian. So I think that rules out the skin color thing. He must not have had a different skin color because if he would have had a different skin color than the princess, then they would not have thought he was an Egyptian. Now, the reason that they most likely did think he was an Egyptian is because he had quickly run away and was probably wearing the royal Egyptian clothes. And also, very likely... As we talked about with Joseph, he was clean shaven everywhere, and that would also be indicative of him being an Egyptian. So that's probably why she thought that that's what he was, because you know that she didn't think it because of circumcision, because she is not privy to that information at the well. And so it may have even been that that was the way it was in the river, is that he just looked different because he was dressed in different clothes and all of that. But most likely in the river, it was just because she knew that he had to be a Hebrew boy because who else would hide their baby? I just wanted to kind of dispel the fact that he probably had a different skin color because that wouldn't make sense here. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time on Moses's character because it seems that he cannot stand by and watch people be mistreated because three times in a matter of days, he stands up pretty openly and boldly for other people. 
And these are not situations that he had to stand up for someone else because it would not have affected his life one way or the other if he would have just walked away from all of these situations. As a matter of fact, because he handled it badly the first time, he had to run away. And so he really could have just been like, not my business and kept going, but he could not stand there and watch it happen. If you notice the first time, He's really upset at the injustice being done to someone that has no power to do anything about it for himself because this Egyptian has all the authority in the world and this Hebrew has none. He cannot stand up for himself. And that's the reason Moses steps in because Moses does have authority and position in the Egyptian kingdom. Now, would we have liked to have seen him use his position for a little bit better good as opposed to killing this man? Yes, definitely. I wish he would have, you know, gone to somebody and had something done through a better channel. But the point is that he could not stand there and watch this injustice happen to the Hebrew people. Now, the next time, there's no hierarchy. These two Hebrews that are fighting, they're on equal playing field. So that's why he's not having such a harsh reaction as he did the day before where he killed the man. He just comes to them this time and says, hey, why would you do this to each other? You need to stop acting like that. Because there wasn't an injustice being done from a power standpoint. He just felt like there was an injustice because one person was wrong and the other person was innocent. And so when he sees an innocent person getting hit, he can't stand idly by and watch that happen either. And so he speaks up and tries to reason with them. Now, the third time is, again, a power thing. It's strength. These men are using their strength and their power as men to chase away the weak women and Moses, being a man, is able to himself say, huh, you're not going to treat these women like that. You will let them get water. So I want you to think about your own natural tendency towards injustice when you see it or hear about it. Are we all called to stand up for those that can't stand up for themselves? So I want to read you two verses. The first one is found in Isaiah 1.17. It says, Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. So we are supposed to first ourselves learn to do good and then seek justice. Seek after what is good and right. And then it says, rebuke the oppressor, someone that is using their power to oppress others. We are supposed to rebuke them and we are supposed to defend the fatherless and the widow, which to me would be just people that don't have their own protector. Because especially in those days, anyone that did not have a father or a husband was vulnerable. Now, the next verse is Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. These are the wise words of Solomon given to his son, and they say, Open your mouth for the speechless in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, plead the cause of the poor and the needy. So open your mouth for the speechless. Those that cannot speak for themselves, we are supposed to speak for. And we are supposed to speak up for those that are appointed to die. But we need to judge rightly. And so we need to know what righteousness is, how to judge rightly, what justice is. That's why the other verse said, seek justice. 
and then plead the cause of the poor and the needy. So who do these verses tell us are the oppressors? Who has the ability to oppress someone? Anyone that is stronger than the other person, they have ability to oppress. Anyone in a position of authority, anyone that's more powerful, and even those with money have ability to oppress those that are without. Now, who can be oppressed? Basically, all those without, right? Those that are lacking can be oppressed. Those that don't have a father, those that don't have a husband, someone to protect them, those that don't have money, those that don't have power, those that don't have strength, and those that don't have a voice. So if we are supposed to stand up for the oppressed, then those are the people we're supposed to stand up for. And so I want you to stop and think for just a moment, who are these people in our real lives, right? Who is it that might be oppressed in our society that we may know that we may be able to stand up for? Now, those that don't have fathers or husbands or protectors of their own would be orphans, obviously, but also those that are single parents and their children because they're lacking one of their parents and they need someone else to step in and help them out, defend them. Now, that doesn't just mean spouses and children whose parents have either abandoned them or died. It also could be soldiers, spouses, and kids, or prisoners, spouses, and kids, because those are also left alone and are vulnerable. And so we need to be watching out for these people. If we see something going on with those groups of people, then we need to be watching out for them and helping them out in whatever way we can, defending them and protecting them and giving them support where needed. Who do we know that's poor? Now, you can be poor because of no injustice, right? We can be poor and it be our just reward, right? Because we could be poor because we're lazy. We could be poor because of decisions that we've made, maybe addictions that we have or things like that, that keep us from working and making the money that we need. So those people would not necessarily be oppressed. Those people would just be reaping what they sow. But many of the people that are poor are of no fault of their own. It is an injustice to them. You know, maybe they lost their job through no fault of their own. Maybe they just have a low income job for no reason other than where they live or the skills that they have or the education that they have. Maybe they're disabled in some way, mentally or physically, and they can't work or get a job that will make them enough money to support themselves. Maybe for some reason, through no fault of their own, they have too many people to care for and their job doesn't support that. Maybe suddenly they're left without their provider that they used to have. Maybe they have been orphaned or abandoned by their spouse or their parent. Maybe they live in an impoverished country and they're working hard, but they don't have any money. And, you know, maybe they're just starting out in a new job or in adulthood and they just need a little bit of help. It's of no fault of their own. They're working hard, but they're just getting going. So we need to be aware of those people so that we can cannot allow people with money to oppress those people and that we don't allow them to fall through the cracks just because they happen to not have as much money as someone else. 
We need to be watching out for those people. Now, who is powerless and weak? Children. They're just the first people that I think of that just don't have a lot of power. So as adults, we need to be able to see when people are abusing their power over children and take up for them. Women. I know in our society, women are much more capable than in other cultures and in times past, but also there could be women that are being pushed around just because they're women. So we need to be watching out for them. Now, also just any of those that are on the outside, you know, sometimes you are powerless because you're not in the group that's making the decision. And then anyone that's being oppressed by their government, their laws, their system that's above them. That can happen. We hope that our systems treat people well, and we hope that adults treat children well, and women don't have any oppression just because of that. But that does happen sometimes, and so we need to be on the lookout for people using their power against those that don't have it. And also just those that hold a lowly position. You know, a lot of times if you hold a lowly position, then people will decide that they have more power over you. And also going back to the poor thing, if they have more money than you, they think they can hold that over your head, you know, and say, you know, I have more money than you and I can threaten you, make you do whatever I want you to do. And if you don't, then I'll fire you or whatever. Okay. So these are people that use their power over the week. And these people can't do anything about it. And so we need to step in for them. Now, who would not have a voice? The first people that come to my mind are the unborn. An unborn child does not have a voice. And that's why we speak up for them. Those of us that care about the sanctity of life, we have to step up and speak up for them because there is no one else in society with less of a voice than an unborn child. They cannot march for their own rights and and sign petitions and go to their legislators. They can't do that. And so we have to speak up for them. Anyone that doesn't receive a vote, either because they're not part of a country or they're not part of the you know company or whatever it may be, if they don't have a vote and we do, then they don't have a voice in that matter. And so if we happen to have a voice in that matter, then we need to speak up for them. And then again, just anyone that is outside, anyone that is not in the circle may not have a voice, may not know the people that they need to talk to. Maybe we do because we're on the inside and they're on the outside having to suffer the consequences of the people that are on the inside making the decisions. Okay. And then the last group is those that are appointed to die. And this would be the people that are unjustly appointed to die. Because we're talking about injustice. And so there may be prisoners sentenced to death that we may know. And we need to step up and fight for them because they have little resources to be able to do that for themselves. Especially if they have no money or they're in a lowly position or, you know, low status. They may not have the resources to fight for themselves. And so we need to do that. Again, the unborn are vulnerable to death through abortion. And so those would be people that could be appointed to die that we should speak up for. And then anyone that's being abused, right? Any spouse that's being abused, any child that's being abused, they are at risk of death. And if we know that these things are happening to them, then we need to step in and help them and do something about it because they obviously feel helpless. They don't have the power to make it stop. 
And then also just people that live in unsafe neighborhoods. You know, there are places that are safer than other places. And so they may be appointed to die. They may be at risk of death because of where they live. And so we need to help those people also. So I've listed several people that we should help. And now I want to say, how can we do that? Who can we get justice for with our personal gifts that God has given us? Well, if we have time or money, then we can invest it in that, especially those that are poor. We can use our money to help them, either to give them money or, like I said before, maybe their lack of money is putting them in a powerless position. And so we can help them in that way. We can also use any power that we have, any position or strength that we have, we can use that. Because that's what Moses did. He just used his position and power as a man to stand up to these other men. And so we can do that. If we have power where the other person doesn't, then we can step in. Maybe we have power just because we're an adult. Maybe we have power just because we're on the inside making these decisions. Maybe we have power because we are in the system that is oppressing someone else. Okay. So use that power, that strength, that position that you have to help those that you know might be being oppressed by someone else that has power. Also, if you don't have a lot of power, you can gather others to stand with you. You can be a voice in that way. Just go get other people and say, hey, let's stand up for this. This is wrong and we need to do something about it. And so you gather and you just become strong in number because maybe by yourself, you don't have power, position or strength, but together you become powerful. And then also speaking up, right? Sometimes we just need to speak up. We need to say something. In that moment, we need to say, hey, that's not okay. Um, But it may not be speaking out boldly to that person. Maybe it's giving advice to the weak of how they can stand up for themselves or just understanding in a situation, listening. And then another part of speaking out that isn't a bold outward thing is praying. I had a preacher one time that said the most important thing that you can do for someone that you love is speak their name to the holy God. And if you think about that, that is exactly right, because God is the king, the mighty one, the ultimate, most important person in the whole world. And that person's name is being spoken to the most important, most powerful, most perfect God there is. So pray. Everyone can pray, no matter your natural bent. Now, I do have to say, though, that I think that some people naturally are very good at that, too. And so if you know that that is your gift, that you are an intercessor for others, then by all means, always, always do that. But all of us can do that. And then lastly, I want to say pray for yourself. Sounds a little counterintuitive because we're helping others and standing up for others, but we do need to pray for ourselves because we need to pray that we have God's heart, that we know how to judge rightly, right? And that we understand justice and it's not our own justice. That's where I get in trouble sometimes is sometimes because I have this strong sense of I have to do something. Sometimes I feel like I have to do something when I really don't. This is just a personal thing that I feel is unjust, but God doesn't feel it's unjust. And so I need his discernment. And that kind of brings me to 
things to consider when you're standing up for someone, okay? Is this something that God really wants you to act on? Is it something that you've made big in your own mind or is it something that's important to stand up for? And if he does want you to stand up, how? How does he want you to stand up? Because, you know, even though I normally feel compelled to speak out, what if that's not what God wants me to do right now? What if he wants me not to speak to these people, but to speak to him about it? Because he has someone else that he's going to use as a deliverer for that or whatever, right? We can use several different scenarios. And so if God does want us to act on it, how does he want us to act on it? The other thing is, do I need more details? Sometimes I feel like an injustice is happening whenever I was wrong. I didn't know what was going on and I needed more details. And so sometimes we need to stop and think, do I know everything that's going on in this situation? If I'm looking at like Moses was, these two Hebrews fighting and I just walk up on it and I perceive that one is in the wrong and the other one is innocent. Well, I may not know what's happening. And so maybe I need to get more information before I just start, you know, rebuking who I think the oppressor is. Let me give you a verse for that. This is Proverbs eighteen thirteen. He who answers a matter before he hears it is folly and shame to him. So that's what I would be doing if I just walked up on something and I didn't hear all of what was going on and I just immediately acted upon it. Don't do that. The next thing is, is this my business? Now, we talked about how none of these things were necessarily going to change the life of Moses. They were between other parties that had nothing to do with him. But he took personal offense as a person of authority that someone else was using their authority to hurt another. So we just have to be careful. Is it something that this person is helpless? They can't do anything for themselves. Or maybe they can do something for themselves and we just need to stay out of it. If they can handle it on their own, then we're just meddling. If they can't handle it on their own, then we're stepping in and writing an injustice. It's not an injustice if they can handle it themselves. And so this is Proverbs twenty six seventeen, and it says, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel that is not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. What happens when you take a dog by the ears? They start yelping. They may bite you, right? It may come back to bite us if we start meddling in other people's business when we don't know what in the world's going on and it doesn't have anything to do with us. They've got it. And then the next question is, can we help in the wrong way? We know from Moses that, yes, that is a possibility, that we think we're writing an injustice, but we're doing something that's wrong. And Moses, by killing that Egyptian, did something wrong. That was the wrong way to handle it. And so if we sin in our helping, then we aren't helping. So that's something to consider. Can we make things worse for the person that we're trying to help or cause more problems? I mean, yeah, we can do that, right? We can cause more problems sometimes. That's how I was saying earlier about sometimes it's not as big a deal as I'm making it out to be. You know, it bothers me. I think it's an injustice, but you know what? It's going to fix itself. It's not that big of an issue. And if I start, you know, going to people and saying stuff about it, then it's just going to make it a bigger issue than it was if I would have just kept my mouth shut. You know, maybe sometimes there are injustices in this world, but they are making progress. And if we see that there is progress being made and then we start drawing attention to the fact that there's still an injustice, it kind of just sets us back. It kind of just puts us back in a place of, well, everything's unfair when our best bet is to just continue to work on it, continue to make strides in that area and not draw too much attention 
to the injustices and put us back in a situation where we just cause a huge divide. Now, what about can we think that we're helping, but we're actually enabling and victimizing someone? That kind of goes a little bit along with what we were just now talking about. So this is Second Thessalonians three ten through 12. And it says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but just being busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. We have to make sure that there's an injustice there. And that, like we talked about before, if there's not an injustice, if this is your actual justice that you're getting, you don't work, you don't get food, that's justice. And so we have to make sure that there's an actual injustice being made so that we're not enabling or victimizing someone. Now, this is the thing for me. This is a thing that I have to think about every time. If I'm going to speak out, I have to do it in the right way, right? Because if I say the wrong thing or say it in the wrong way, I'm going to cause more problems than if I just kept my mouth shut. Listen to James 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruits of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I can't come in and make the situation more contentious. I have to go in seeking peace and being gentle and willing to yield, willing to listen, being merciful and having all of the good fruits. If I'm not speaking in that way, then I'm not doing justice to the people that I'm trying to help. Now, the last thing would be, what if we don't have any more power, any more strength, any more money, any more authority or voice than the one that we're trying to help? Then what do we do? All of these other things were saying, I have the power to do this, right? I have the ability. I have the money. I have the time. I have the strength. I have the voice. But what if you don't? Well, then you appeal to those in power. You appeal to those with money, with strength, with voice. You go to those people and you say, hey, I don't really have any say in this matter, but you do. So could you do something about this or that? That's another thing that I have a difficult time with. And I've realized through this study is that sometimes I don't have any more power than the person that I'm standing up for. And so the person in power is not going to listen to me. And I just look rebellious or disrespectful when I'm speaking to a person in power that I feel is being unjust to someone that's not. And so what I really need to do is appeal to a person with power. Now, I have a couple of verses that I missed a little bit earlier that I'd like to read to you. On the note of praying for others, I want you to listen to Psalm 34, 14 through 19. Again, we can all pray for other people. These are the things that we need to do whenever we are defending others. Depart from evil and do good. So we must be good ourselves, right? Seek peace and pursue it. We talked about that before. Make sure that what you're doing is peaceful. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears. He delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such that have a contrite spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So that tells us that the Lord hears the cries of the righteous. And so if we know him, we need to cry out to him for the afflictions of others. Now, these next two are a little lengthy, but I think that it is worth reading. And we'll end with these. This is on the note of praying for ourselves, okay? What should we be praying for ourselves? So this is Proverbs 2, 1 through 11. And this is Solomon again, giving instructions to his son. And he says, My son, if you will listen to my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you will incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek them as silver and search for her as a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteous and justice, equity, and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you and understanding will keep you. So these tell us the things to seek, the things to ask God for. Let's just list them. It says wisdom, understanding, discernment. It says to lift up our voice for those things, ask for those things, treasure them, knowledge. And then it talks about God shielding those that walk with the upright and guarding the paths of justice. And it says, if we do these things, then we will understand righteousness, justice, equity, and every good path. And so that's what we need to understand, right? We need to understand what is right and what is wrong. We need to understand what is fair and just and what is not. We need to understand equity, what is equal. We need to understand every good path if we are going to speak up for those that don't. Because if we don't understand those things, then we're doing it in the wrong way. We may be speaking up for an injustice that doesn't need to be happening. Okay, and then the last one is Isaiah 59, 14 to 16. And it says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity can't enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from the evil makes himself prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him. So I just bring this one up because it again kind of talks about there not being justice or equity And that the righteous are kind of standing away, not doing anything about it. He says there's no intercessor. And so that tells us again that we can intercede for others. So I know this was a long lesson, but I just felt like we needed to talk a little bit about how to stand up for the weak and the powerless, because I do think that that's something that's important. If we have the ability to do that, we need to. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. We will talk next week about who God is. And so make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. Find someone this week that you can defend or protect, stand up for. And then leave me comments wherever you're listening or at my email, which is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. 
And then just make sure that you tune in next week so that you can see who God is. Thanks and have a good day. Thank you.